enjoyed the skit about the mom purse. And the reason that I enjoyed that is because my wife has a mom purse. And occasionally, my wife will tell me to go get something out of the mom purse. And I tell you what, I mean, it is a feeling of dread. Because I have to unzip that thing, look into it, and just think, dear God, how is all this stuff in there? And I don't want to touch three or four things in don't here. Don't mess it up. Do what? Don't mess it up. Yeah. And she's like, go get something out of it. I'm like, how do you find anything in this? But she can, you know, she's got the magic, and she can go and get it and pull it out. And I'm thankful she carries it because it's coming handy for me, and she's not my mom. So she's got stuff in there for everybody. All right, Lord, I want to thank you for the time that I get to be here this morning, and I get to preach your word to my family, Lord, to the people that know you and belong to you, and maybe even to some people who don't know you. Lord, I ask that you make my words your words, and your words my words, so that whatever it is I say this morning is what you want the folks to hear, Lord. Anything that I say that you don't want them to hear, Lord, I ask that you just put that out into the ether, out of the outer space. I just want them to hear your words, Lord. So I ask that you give me the ability to preach this well, Lord, to expose your word from the Bible well. And I ask that the people take this uh, from the sermon this morning, any words that come from you, and that you assign to it great meaning to them so that they can use it in their lives, Lord, and just be an advancer of your kingdom where they are. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, we're going to talk about, this morning, we're going to explore, we're going to look at, we're going to sort of pick apart the power, the burden, and the glory of motherhood. The power is spiritual, and the burden is not light or easy, and the glory is a mighty reflection of the glory of God. But before I can take you onto that path to where you get to see the power, the burden, and the glory of motherhood, I first must take you on a path in which you get to consider and look at the differences between those folks who are blessed and those folks who are cursed, between those people who can be called wise and between, uh, between those people who can be called fools. So we're going to have to look at that. We're going to have to look at the blessed people and the cursed people, the wise people and the fools. And the best place that I can think of to start that this morning is for you to look at Psalm number one. Psalm number one is a great summary. It's also my favorite psalm. It's a great summary of the differences between blessed people and cursed people, between wise people and foolish people. So we're going to begin there in Psalm number one. I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then we're going to do very quick, well, as far as quick can be with me, first by first look at this particular psalm. So in Psalm one, we'll read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now this particular psalm is written 
uh, in a masculine sense. In other words, it's talking about a man, the blessed man. But this psalm applies to women just as easily because man, at least in a categorical sense, is something that includes both men and women. So we're going to go through this again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed in the Hebrew, the word that this is trans, uh, translated from in the Hebrew means to be happy or joyful. So happy or joyful, blessed is the man or the woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The person who is going to be blessed and happy and joyful is a person who avoids walking in the counsel of the wicked. They do not live their life, they do not walk on a path, they do not constantly take the advice of people who are wicked. People who are outside the norm of the good, the wise person, the happy person, the blessed person, will not walk in their ways, and he will not accept their counsel. And he doesn't sit, or he doesn't stand in the way of the sinners. Now, in first reading, at first blush of this, you might think, well, shouldn't I stand in the way of sinners so that they cannot continue in their way? Well, that's not what, uh, that's not what the psalmist means here. What he means is... That the person who is blessed and happy and joyful is someone who avoids the entire path of the wicked. He does not get onto that path. He doesn't walk on it. When he sees the path, he goes a different way. He's not going to step in that path and walk the same way that they are. He's not even going to stand there idly. He's going to avoid it. Because the problem with getting into the path of the wicked is that sooner or later, the wave of people that are moving down that path are going to grab hold of the person who's just trying to stand there, and he's going to go along with that flow and that stream, and he's going to become one of those. So David, the psalmist says that the wise and happy person does not stand in the way of the sinners. He doesn't even go near it. He stays away from the path altogether. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. A scoffer is someone who mocks, who makes fun of, who makes light of things. And in this particular context, a scoffer is someone who makes fun of the way of the Lord. You've seen this person, you've probably seen it in, in television sitcoms and in movies, and you've probably experienced it in your high school days, and I wouldn't doubt that you don't experience it at work, even with people that you might think are mature. These are the people that make fun of you because you're doing the right thing. These are the people that scoff and mock and make fun of you because you have chosen a different way than they have. That you have chosen a wise path, one that may, uh, may compete with the pleasures that the scoffer is enjoying. So they want to make you look small or little or bad or somebody that's not cool. That's the scoffer. So the wise and blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't enjoy any of that. Instead, verse 3 or verse 2 says... That the wise man, the blessed man, the joyful man, the happy man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed, happy, joyful, wise man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Let me give you a picture of what this means. What this means is that that person is constantly, as long as he is awake, trying to internalize the meaning of the law of the Lord. And this actually has a pretty specific meaning as well because, and we'll go into this a little bit later in the sermon, but the law, according to the Jews, was the first five books of the Old Testament. 
That would have been Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the law as far as the Jews saw that. And in those five books, you will find stories and narratives. You'll find edicts and principles. You'll find rules. All of this stuff is contained in those first five books. And you get a wonderful picture of how those rules and how avoiding those rules pan out in a person's life because it's been given to us in stories. And we can even relate to it today, thousands of years later, because those stories, the central themes of those stories are no different today than they were then. It's the same thing. Might be different tools and different technology, might be different systems of government or whatever, but the basic themes of good and evil and how people live their lives within a moral context is contained in those stories. So the wise man, the blessed man, thinks about those all day. In fact, it says that he meditates day and night. That word meditate in the Hebrew language actually has in it the connotation of constantly verbally repeating it to yourself. So you might go throughout your day saying to yourself, you might say to yourself, I will not sit in the seat of scoffers. I will not sit in the seat of scoffers. I will not follow the path of the wicked. I will not follow the path of the wicked. The way of the wise man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. So you're saying these things to yourself constantly. In fact, what you can find a good reference to this uh, as I was doing uh, my reading this morning, I came to a great place that actually uses that word. You'll find it in Joshua. You don't have to go there. It's not on the slides. But in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, if you guys are not familiar with that, Moses was the leader of the Hebrew people as they left Egypt and were headed for the promised land. Moses could not go into the promised land because he had disobeyed God and had kind of a bad attitude about things. But his number one man was a guy named Joshua. And Joshua takes up the mantle of Moses to lead the people into the promised land. And this is what comes to Joshua in the first chapter. Um, Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to your forefathers to give to them. That's what God says to Joshua. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful in whatever you do. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. That's what God says to Joshua as the leader of the Hebrew people. I want this law not to leave your mouth. And in order for it not to leave your mouth, it must be engaged in your mind. And the two of those things must be synced up just like like an MP3 player and a Bluetooth speaker. They've got to be synced up in such a way that that information is passing between the two of them. Don't let it leave your mouth, Joshua. Don't let it leave your mind. Think about it day and night because it is this law that leads you to be prosperous. And he means in that not just the prosperity of economics. That's included at some level. But the greater level here is that you will be prosperous in all of the things that I ask you to do as you lead these Hebrew people into the promised land. That's a prosperity that I want you to have, Joshua, because that will be the best for all of the people who are now called my children in a national sense. Everybody tracking? Okay, I'm not going too fast. All right. Verse 3, the person who does that, who meditates on it day and night, 
and keeps that in his or her mouth and in his or her mind. That person, verse 3, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. That person who meditates on that law day and night becomes like a tree next to a stream of living water. This is a fantastic image that the psalmist gives us. And it's one I want imprinted upon your mind. It is a tree. What does a tree remind you of? It is something strong. It is something that is alive. It is something that can't be moved. That's the image that the psalmist wants you to have. Alive, strong, unmovable. And this is a great picture at the time that the psalmist wrote it because he lived in a land that was not like ours. He lived in a land that was dry and parched. There were not five magnitude springs every time you turned a corner. Water most of the time had to be collected in cisterns after it rained. But instead, this is a tree that has been planted by a stream of water that nourishes it, that causes it to grow, that causes it to be alive, that is so strong that a man of that day could not pull that tree up. He either had to chop it down or saw it down. It's a symbol of strength planted next to a stream of water. That will become important later as we talk of mothers. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. The tree is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of something being alive, and because it produces fruit in its season, it is a symbol of productivity. It's productive, but the wicked, verse 4, are not like that. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Chaff. If you don't know what chaff was, chaff is the worthless part of rain. It has no value at all. That's the wicked. They are valueless and they are worthless, at least in the sense of a community binding kind of standard. They have no value in that sense. And the way that they got rid of the chaff was that they would take a winnowing fork and they would pick up the grain from the threshing floor and they would toss it into the air. They did this in the evening times when there were light breezes in the area. And as they would throw that chaff into the air, the breeze would catch, or throw that grain into the air, the breeze would catch the chaff and sort of blow it away. And then the useful, productive kernels would fall to the threshing floor and then the people would have something to eat from the grain. The chaff was worthless. The only thing that they ever really used that chaff for was well, sometimes they would sweep it up after it had been separated from the grain and they would throw it into their ovens because it made a very fast hot fire. It got things started. That was all it was good for. It was burning up. It was worthless. That's what the wicked are, according to David the psalmist. That in terms of your community, these are people that have no worth. They're people that rob from you, that have problems with you, that cause difficulty. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment for sinners in the congregation, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They don't have enough to them. They cannot stand the fire of judgment. So that when God brings the fire of judgment, they are burned up just like the chaff in the oven. But the people that have worth and that walk in the right way, they remain. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist is separating for us 
In a community sense, the wicked from those who follow the Lord. Even though the people that follow the Lord are not perfect, they have a way that takes them to the Lord. The wicked, which may sometimes appear perfect, have a way that takes them away from the Lord. Does that make sense? And as they are taken away from the Lord, the difficulties in their life become greater and greater and greater. This is wisdom that the psalmist is giving us. This wisdom was so important that David's son continued the idea and wrote an entire group of scriptures that we call the Proverbs that are nothing more than little bits and well, actually, I would say it's more than little bits of wisdom. They're often the Proverbs are often arranged in couplets, <coughs> and um, and so it makes it very easy for them to be read. Sometimes it's a little difficult to pull. What does that couplet have to do with this couplet? Well, they don't often go together, but it's just the, the proverb writer putting down these little bits of wisdom for a whole book. By the way, if you didn't know this, there are 31 proverbs in the Bible. This makes it great devotional material because you can read a chapter of proverbs for every day of the month. And therefore, you could meditate every day of the month on something that comes from the Lord. Very easy. You could get wisdom put into you. So Proverbs 1, 1 through 9... Solomon's continuing this idea, and so important is the idea of wisdom to him that he wants to put, the, he tells us the reason why he wrote the Proverbs right there in chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Proverbs, verses 1 through 9, you've only got 1 through 8, Abby, so no sweat. I'm just going off the hip right now, so it's cool. All right, Proverbs chapter 1, 1 through 9, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand the proverb and the saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So I'm going to go over this a little bit. There's a couple of these here, just a little bit we're going to expose. We're going to start. Well, first, we're going to say that the reason he gives this is because it's important to him that the people in his kingdom have wisdom. That's why he's writing these want you to have wisdom, because if you don't have wisdom, bad things happen. Um, so the first thing that he says uh, that's important to you is that, number, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Beginning of the, uh, uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord is not, I'm afraid of the Lord, that's not what it is. It is a significant respect for the power of the Lord. A few years ago, I think it's been four years ago now, four or five years ago now, my oldest son wanted me to ride motorcycles with him, and I'm cheap. So he gave me a motorcycle. He gave me a Harley Davidson uh, Sportster, 1200 low. And I hadn't ridden a motorcycle since I was probably that high. Dad, go try it out. Why don't you go try it out? All right, son, I'll do that. So I get on this motorcycle. I haven't ridden motorcycles in decades. And 
I come around the little corner and I, I slip a little bit. I'm not used to that feeling of slipping as I'm coming around the corner. I caught a little bit of sand and it scared me. And I did that. Right? Woo! Right? And that motorcycle took off and went off a ditch. And I came off the front of that motorcycle, by the way, no helmet on at all. Stupid. And landed on my head. And I had to walk around like this for like a month. Right? I was actually driving on some trip after we did that, and I'm like, we're going through like this bad neighborhood, and his car breaks down um, after this had happened, and he just goes out and says, hey, this guy was like, he was working on, Caleb was working on the truck, and the guy comes up and says, you want some help? And Caleb says, sure, why don't you follow me up to my house, I have a garage. I'm like, I don't do that, this is not what I do. <laughs> I am not Nelson Placencia. I don't let people I don't know in my car. I am walking the way of the wise. But he follows the guys who go to the house. And as we're going to the house, I'm recognizing that this is not the kind of neighborhood that I'm used to living in. And I'm sitting there like, if we have to fight, you are on your own. Anyway, I think I'd be a really good guy and was useful to us and all that. But the point of that is, I still ride that Harley motorcycle. I'm not afraid of that Harley motorcycle. I love that Harley motorcycle. It's not as comfortable as the Honda, but I like it, okay? The, the thing is, now I have respect for the power of that motorcycle. There have been times where I've been hiking in the mountains and literally walking along the edge of the trail like this with a backpack on my back, and it's literally 70 feet down. Okay, I'm not afraid to do that, but I am very respectful of what can happen. So I walk as far from the edge as I can and lean this way as much as, as, much as I can, right? So, which is probably stupid, because then you fall. But anyway, the point I'm making here is that the fear of the Lord is not something where you are afraid of the Lord, it's where you respect the power that he has. He is, after all, the master of the universe and your creator. So Solomon says in verse, Solomon tells us in verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise <coughs> wisdom and instruction. This word instruction in Proverbs is a word that means discipline, chastisement, rebuke, correction. That's what that word means in Hebrew. Fools despise it. They don't like to be corrected. They don't like to be told that they're wrong. They don't like to be shown that they're wrong. They don't like to be shown that there's a better way. They avoid that, and that's why they're fools. Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, his discipline, his chastisement, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your mother. I'm going to skip verse Eight for a minute and go to verse 9. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Your father's correction and rebuke and your mother's teaching. These are how people know. These decorations, these are decorations on you that point toward your parents, point toward your mother and your father. They are examples and reflections of their goodness. And they are decorations for you. 
Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. This word teaching here comes from the Hebrew word Torah. Have you ever heard that word before? Do you know what it means? Huh? It means law. In fact, Torah is the law. The Hebrews today, the Jewish people today, when you tell them, have you read your Torah today? Oh, have I read the law? Have I read the first five books from the first five books of uh, the Bible today? Yes, I have. I know I have. That's the Torah. So verse 8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's Torah. Her law. Her law is her teaching. It's her guidance. We are going to talk about the power of motherhood and the burden of motherhood and the glory of motherhood. The power of that motherhood is spiritual. Because in most instances, the first person to teach a child, a young boy or a young girl, is the mother. And she lays down that law for that child over the first several years of their life. She is the one that prepares that child to either accept or reject wisdom. She is the one that inserts into that child's heart and into his mind and into his little spirit that guidance of wisdom. So that when he becomes a man or she becomes a woman, they have it in them already to receive rebuke effectively. They have it already in them to see the path of the wicked and avoid it. They have in them already the tools to walk rightly on the path of wisdom. The mother provides that. So it says there in verse 8, Hear my son, your father's instruction. Son, hear your father's rebuke. Hear that rebuke. He's correcting you. He's pushing you back to the mother's law. You didn't use good manners there, son. You didn't use good manners there, daughter. Respect your elders. Don't steal. Don't go to places that might get you in trouble. Be moral. Be good. Be a representative of your family. And most importantly, be a representative of your God. Son, I'm going to have to correct you. Daughter, I'm going to have to correct you so that you follow the law that your mother has given you when you were young. And if you do that, if you follow the, the law of your mother, and if your mother has properly implanted the law into you, then you will not have to be rebuked by your father. That's wisdom, guys, from Solomon. And powerful wisdom from Solomon. Do not neglect the rebukes of your father. Do not neglect the Torah of your mother. Because these things are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Verse 9. They decorate you. This idea of law was supremely important to God. He tells us in Deuteronomy. These won't be on the slide. You just have to bear with me. There's a Deuteronomy verse there, but I'm not quite expanding it. You find it in Deuteronomy 6. You can put that slide up there if you do have Deuteronomy. You can read more around it, but you can put it up there. This is a very, very important uh, section from Deuteronomy. Uh, it is one that the Jewish people really, really, really um, consider to be supremely important. It is of high, great importance. And there's a reason for that. 
This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. Now, from a Christian perspective, without getting too much into the weeds with you, from a Christian perspective, I would say that the Lord is one means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all different but all the same, are perfectly integrated into this system in which they are completely indistinguishable from each other but also different from each other. It's a mystery that we can't explain, but we can think of it in this way, that it is perfect integration. Perfect integration. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. You're going to love your God with everything. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, this law should be in everything that you do. Everything that you do. You should teach it to your children in everything that you do. And this is the burden of motherhood. The power of motherhood is the spirituality that she can infuse into that child from a young age. But the burden of motherhood is that she must put this into her children and live a life. Which is very difficult to do. It's almost, it is impossible really to do it effectively and best. Because your life is always going to be tugged away by your own desires. They're always going to be tugged away by your own comforts, and you're going to forget to teach your children what you should be teaching them because there's this constant battle inside of you. But God says, do it this way. Tell them about everything. Proverbs 22, verse 6. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together, meaning that they have something in common. That thing that they have in common is that the Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So when you respect the Lord properly, you get riches and honor and life. Verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep them, will keep far from them. Verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old. We will not depart from it. This doesn't mean that he won't ever walk away from it at all, mothers, because he or she will. What it means is that when you have trained them properly and you have given them your Torah, mother, that in later life, if they are not completely rebellious, they will return back to that wisdom that you have given them. So do as much as you can to infuse them as much as you can with a true fear and respect for the power of the Lord so that they will seek his ways and his goodness. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So the power of motherhood is spiritual. You infuse into your child the right spirit so that they have the right attitude towards wisdom, the right fear towards God. The burden of motherhood is that somehow you must find a way to do that while still living your own life without giving up who you are. That's a burden. An even bigger burden, it's the same one that fathers face, is that we do not even know what to do 95% of the time. 
you think you're doing right, you think you have the answers, you think you've learned something from TV or the magazine or your professor or your doctor or whatever, and you find out that it was completely wrong because you're, going, you're living life just like everybody else one day at a time. So that's the burden of motherhood, trying to figure out how to do all of this because I know that whatever it is I put into this child is going to have some kind of an effect. And that effect may not always be good. That's a burden. But praise God, when you put God first to the best of your ability, when you put into that child as best you can a fear of the Lord, that do not depart from it, in their old age they will return to it, and there will be an integration between you and your husband and your child that is provided that you and your husband and your child have really given in to the fear of the Lord. There will be an integration, and you will be a reflection of God himself. That is the glory of motherhood. Genesis 3.20 tells us this, that Adam called his, wife, his, name, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve was the mother of all living. And you, if you're a mother today, you are a mother of the living that has come out of your line. And that living can be two ways. That living can either be living a spiritual, God-centered life, or it can be a living that tries to avoid that life, which eventually becomes death. So the charge that I would have to mothers this morning is that recognize that if you're still, heck, it doesn't matter if you're not, if, you, if the kids are out of your house, you're still a mother. You're still training them, you're still teaching them, you're still living out an example. You're still showing them what an attitude of the Lord should look like. You're constantly seeking the Lord. You are constantly meditating on his law day and night so that even as an adult, they see that you still value that truth. That's the charge that I give to you this morning with your mothers. If you are the child of a mother, the charge that I give to you is to recognize her for what she is. A glorious giver of law and life to you. Amen. I promise you she didn't do it perfectly, but she did it to the best of her ability in most cases. Now, some of you may have had mothers that were truly evil, and those are exceptions. Most mothers try, at least some, at some level, to put goodness into you. And where they have done that, you should recognize them for it. Because part of that law, in the first five books of the Old Testament, where you get the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, you will find verse 12 says this, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that, uh, and that, the, Lord your God is, that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your mother and father. It's the first commandment with a promise. And that promise is that you will have many days in the land. That you will live a long, prosperous life when you honor your mother and your father. I'm going to close this out with that. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity this morning that I got to share with these folks your word, Lord. I ask that you implant it in their heart with power, and I ask that there are mothers here that where they have made their mistakes, because I know they have, because I'm a father and I have made mistakes and I continue to do so. But Lord, I ask that you show them that you can take those mistakes and turn them into wisdom. Lord, I ask that you heal them from any feelings of that and that you give them the power and the strength to continue on in being the lawgivers. Lord, I ask that you bless the mothers in this room. And Lord, I ask that every child who has been blessed by his mother in this room I ask that you give them the ability to honor their mother and to honor it most 
not by taking them to a Sunday lunch once a year, Lord, but to honor it most by living a life that would be pleasing to you. To embody, Lord, anything that came from their mother's law, that their goodness will be a living example of that goodness. Lord, I ask that you bless those folks here who may have had evil or terrible mothers, and I ask that you give them other female examples, Lord, to nurture them and to lead them in this life and to infuse them with Torah from you. Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.